Thank you for joining me for today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. Our mission is to bring you information you can trust about important issues of our time. Today, we're bringing you another in our series, Confessions of Psychedelic Elders. In this series, prominent people in the sciences and arts are going to reveal to you, our listeners and the world, details of their courageous sub rosa self-experimentation with psychedelics over the past decades. My purpose in creating this series is to counter the decades of disinformation about psychedelics and inform the world that prominent, good citizens, contributory citizens, patriots, solid fathers and mothers have risked their careers and their livelihoods in order to learn from psychedelics and advanced science. Our guest today is one of these courageous healers and scientists, Dr. Maria Vittoria Mangini. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Maria. Thank you very much, Dr. Miller. I'm so pleased to be here. Well, if I'm going to call you by your beautiful name, Maria Vittoria, please call me Richard. Surely. Maria has written extensively on the impact of psychedelic experiences in shaping the lives of her contemporaries, and she's worked closely with many of the most distinguished investigators in this field. Her long history with the world-famous Haight-Ashbury Medical Clinic includes having been a barefoot patient, a lead clinician in the medical section, and also chair of the board of directors. If you want more information about Maria Vittoria Mangini, please go to Google and you'll find it. <laughs> now, to, <laughs> now to our interview. <laughs> Getting right to it. How did you first come upon and get interested in psychedelic medicines? Oh, well, now psychedelic medicine, the, the, the idea of psych psychedelic medicine as it is understood today is one that's of pretty recent derivation. And I think that there's been a conscientious choice in this century to choose the medical applications of psychedelics as a way of dispelling the kind of fog of disinformation that you were just talking about. So my interest in psychedelic medicine really has sort of been um, parallel to the current uh, developments of the research environment. But my interest in psychedelics has been going on for quite a long time. I first encountered, I encountered my first psychedelics when I was still in my teens. And I had a persuasive and compelling experience of some really incontrovertible truths that caused me to continue to have an interest in exploring that area, even when it was really um, in, in lots of ways reprehended, but in more important ways, very, I mean, to a certain extent, it was quite dangerous. Um, I wrote my, I, I'm fond of saying I have a PhD in LSD um, because I wrote my doctoral dissertation at the University of California, San Francisco, starting in 1994. And when I started doing it, the, um, the information that was given to me by the people who were my mentors was that it was a ill-advised topic, that it was a stigmatized topic, that the stigma would stick to me, that I'd never get a job, that nobody was interested in this stuff. None of that turned out to be true. But I did, um, in fact, the, the, <clears throat> the introduction that you gave to the topics of these talks really could have been taken from the, from the results of my doctoral research. 
because I interviewed people who were in, at that time in their 40s about experiences that they had had with psychedelics and what the impact of those experiences was. And they said all the things that you just described about how they were better citizens, better parents, more uh, committed to preserving the natural environment, more dedicated to public service, and that these were all things that they perceived as impacts of their psychedelic experiences. Is there a way that our listeners can reference that piece of research? You You know, my dissertation has never been published, and um, I finished it in 2000. And what happened to me after that was what I describe as having the death bomb drop on me. I had about a 10 or 12 year period when there was always somebody either in my immediate family or my extended family who was either very, very ill or actively dying. And I, I didn't pursue the kind of path of academic research that normally people do when they've completed a PhD. So I never published it. And as a result, a lot of it is the, the supporting parts of it are quite out of date. But I do have all these wonderful interviews from people. And so now that I've kind of rejoined that world, I'm starting to think about publishing it. Oh, yes. I would love to see those interviews transcribed, just as we're going to transcribe your interview today and include it in the book, uh, Confessions of the Psychedelic Elders. You mentioned that when you first uh, uh, got experienced psychedelic medicine, uh, two words that caught my interest. One was truths, inconvertible truths, and the other, dangers. Tell us about truths and dangers, please. Well, I had my first encounter with LSD when it was still not an illegal substance, but the circumstances in which I took it were ones in which I was still living at home, more or less, and I was out of the confines of what was approved of by my pretty conservative Catholic family. So there was always an element of doing something I really wasn't supposed to be doing. But I had this very um, conventional and and um, pretty rigorous religious education. I was always in Catholic school up to the time of 12th grade. And I think my my teachers were trying to prepare me for a world in which I would go to college and there would be some atheistic professor who would attack my religion. And um, so I had a lot of I had a lot of education. I had a lot of Bible criticism and apologetics and stuff like that as a high school student. And I had been taught about certain um, traditions that are believed within Catholic dogma about things like what the state of human beings was before they ate the apple, you know. So uh, when when I first took LSD, I didn't feel like I was losing my mind. I felt like I was sitting in God's lap. And all those things, the, the preternatural gifts, the, the ability to talk to animals, the ability to get, be as big as the sky, the ability to travel through time, these were all things that I had been introduced to as part of the sort of pre-Edenic state of humans. So it didn't strike me as anything very strange. It struck me as something very sacred. And I became really interested in and committed to exploring it further. The difficulty for me was it kind of disconnected me from my religious upbringing because I really felt like the I had been told that you could receive the body of God within in communion. But by comparison, the communion that I had received up to that point seemed like kind of a placebo. And when you talked, mentioned the word dangers that you also uh, had a sense of as a teenager, uh, with these medicines, what were the dangers that you that you associate? Well, I think the d- the dangers actually developed 
alongside my early experiences because not long after I had my first experience, the substances became illegal. LSD became illegal in California and then nationally. And um, then I, my parents couldn't get me. I was grew up in the Bay Area. I um, uh, was born and raised in Burlingame. And my parents couldn't get me out of California fast enough. I wanted to go to the University of California in Berkeley, and they were, definitely wanted me to, get, to go somewhere else. And uh, I ended up going to Vassar. But my parents didn't recognize that 15 miles away from Vassar was Timothy Leary. And uh, so I spent as much time uh, associating with the people who were part of that sort of psychedelic ashram as I could get away with. And it was a time when they were under a lot of scrutiny legally by the local sheriff who was considered to be a major pest in our world. And by one of the local district attorneys who was, um, it, it turns out that that was G. Gordon Liddy and that he made his professional reputation by persecuting the people at Millbrook, really. That's how he became a plumber, was he had a reputation for that. What year was that, that you were at Vassar? At? I, I, went, I went, I attended for the first time in 1967. Oh, so it was just at that mm -hmm. time when all, everything, in fact, LSD was uh, scheduled as illegal in 1967, as I, I think recall. 68, but um, oh, 68. yeah, well, there's a mm -hmm. difference between California and nationally. I see, I see. So how did those early experiences with, uh, with mostly with LSD, I gather, how did they change your conception of God from having the conception you had as a as a Catholic. Well, they didn't, actually. I felt like my Catholic ah. education was pretty adequate. What changed was the ability to access that. And, you know, that's always been troublesome to people who are the upholders of orth religious orthodoxy is that they want you to access those realms, those sacred realms, through their mediation because they translate it for you. And people accessing those things directly has always been problematic. And in some ways, that's where the Protestant Reformation came from. You know, like, should people be allowed to read the Bible in their own language, or should it only be printed in Latin so that you have to have somebody from the church translate it for you? The intermediary mm -hmm. between the person and God that uh, Luther complained mm -hmm. about. Just so. Indeed. Tell us about some of those early psychedelic, and I gather that most, if not all, of your early experiences with psychedelics were with LSD. Oh, yes. Although by the time I got to New York, some other things were available to me. And I did, um, you know, I, I, I was a kid and, and we were all pretty ill-informed about a lot of these things. And so I was pretty unconcerned about what the, um, you know, toxic or um, physical implications of taking any of this stuff might be. Um, it didn't ever occur to me that anybody would ever hurt me and none of it ever did. And that's kind of what I meant when we were talking earlier about good fortune. I think I did some things during that period in my life that were wildly dangerous, but I never really got any bad consequences from them. What would be an example of wildly dangerous? Oh, you know, I left a Vassar mixer on the back of the motorcycle of a young man that I had only just met and ended up at a farm about halfway between Vassar and Millbrook, where there was a, the first commune that I ever encountered. And uh, I was invited to smoke pot for the first time. 
Now, the the pot and the and the the family that I then became friendly with and the whole association that I had with their life was not the danger. It was getting on a motorcycle with somebody you didn't know and heading out into the country in the dark in the middle of the night. You know, I was very lucky that it turned out to be that he was a reasonable person. You mentioned that uh, you 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 haven't experienced negative health effects from these. Uh, um, experiments that you did, if we should call them that? Um, well, no. And in fact, I think that the the classic psychedelics, the serotonergic ones, um, really, they're, they're all good science around that topic really says that physiologically, they're pretty safe. Um, it really, um, you, you know, Dr. Charlie Grobe, who's one of the um, the people who's really brought forward the idea of um, psychedelic medicine has just recently with a colleague has just published a, a, a textbook called the handbook of hallucinogenic medicine handbook of medical hallucinogens. And it's a textbook, but, uh, and that's, I think why he used the word hallucinogens, which I tend to have a little difficulty with, but um, I have a chapter in that textbook in which um I talked about all the different kinds of myths that have been promulgated about psychedelics. And one of the really prominent ones, for example, is about physical uh, damage. And it's the whole idea of chromosome breakage, you know, and like chromosome breakage was a big deal in the 19, early 1970s. And it was seized upon and supported as an avenue for research because people were really looking for a physiologic problem that would be caused by psychedelics. So, so it could be used to scare people so that they wouldn't use them. And Charlie just came out with this book recently. I'm glad you're referencing it. You have a copy. You looked over to the left. I do, actually. I'd have to get it. up and get it, but I would get it for you. It's called, okay. it's called Handbook okay. of Medical Hallucinogens. Okay, glad I'm glad you're referencing it. I've interviewed uh, Charlie on this program, and now that you're tell, I wasn't aware of the book, and I thank you because I'll interview him on that book, of course. Um, what can you tell us about dosage of LSD that you were taking in those days? Well, of course, nobody knew. Um, and uh, by comparison, I think that the doses that were used in those early times were pretty hefty. Um, uh, I would guess probably in the range of 200 micrograms, maybe 250 micrograms, a fully psychedelic amount. Um, not what would, what people sometimes now call a museum dose, where you you know you're definitely altered, but you can walk around and manage the world. This was like a hundred micrograms. Yeah, yeah that, I didn't know that. That's a good term, a museum dose. Mm -hmm. And did you continue? Have you continued to use uh, psychedelics for various experiences and research and uh, introspection and so on over the years? Tell us the. Give us your history, please. Well, I um, I belonged. I have belonged to. Uh, oh, let me see how to how to frame this. Um, because I went through doctoral education on the topic of drug policy, I have a lot of like I, theoretical ideas about stuff. Um, I'm thinking about Becker's work, The Outsider, in which. Many years ago, he, as a young person who was being exposed to cannabis for the first time, because he was playing in a jazz group where cannabis was part of the, you know, the habits of the other musicians that he worked with, he talked about what it takes for people to to um, 
to engage in what he called a deviant career. You know, like what you have, what has to be happening in your life for a deviant behavior to really take hold in your life. And one of the things is you have to not be in a too disapproving social environment. Like people have to be able to be okay with the fact that you're doing something that's um, got some socially discordant implications. And I have had that. Um, I've I've uh, lived a lot of my life with people who had the same kinds of early experiences with psychedelics that I had. And so they didn't have any fears about them or um, sense that people who took them were strange or um, might be crazy or might be dangerous people. Um, and so the opportunities to experiment with them that have presented themselves to me, I've been able, that's another thing that I meant about circumstances and good luck. I've been able to have whatever subsequent psychedelic experiences that I've had in environments where nobody thought it was a bad thing to do. And um, that's made it a lot easier for me. Well, you're telling a very different story than uh, a few of the uh, professors that I've interviewed from the Midwest, uh, such as Tom Roberts, uh, who had to virtually be doing his experimentation in isolation. I think that's true of Chris Bash as well. Uh, you know I them. Do. Because, yes, because they had no one to share their information with. And uh, what they were doing was seen as deviant behavior and, uh, and, and scary to a lot of people. But that was not the case. No, and, you know, I've talked about this with Chris Bache. And, and um, I think for him, he, he's a very serious student of Tibetan Buddhism. Very serious. Yes, and um, I think that his Buddhist mind training is part of the way that he was able to bring those experiences back and talk about them and analyze them. And so, you know, not that I have that kind of mind training, but that I do have the, the, the sort of um, uh, uh, inherited context that I had my religious training in helped me to understand what was happening to me so that, that, that the sacred part of it was always predominant for me, much more, I mean, you know, I've, I've described this, obviously, I wrote my doctoral dissertation about this, so I've done a lot of thinking and writing about this, but I've described the way that psychedelics have been used in this country, particularly in the last century, as being divided up kind of between the East Coast School and the West Coast School. And the East Coast School was the one that I encountered at Millbrook, where people were very serious, you know, and this was like a meditative practice, and people went into a special part of the community where everybody knew that there was somebody tripping and that was considered to be an energy center. And there was the translation of the Tibetan book of the dead and all that kind of stuff was really taken very seriously. And with the, with a lot of moderation and quietness. And then there was what you might call the West coast school, which prevailed among the merry pranksters and around the grateful dead. And people took psychedelics in a party environment and they, you know, there was a lot of sensory bombardment and the ability to sort of keep your composure fully psychedelicized in an environment like that was um, validated as distinct from, you know, sitting in the lotus position and thinking about your spiritual development. And I've had both of those kinds of experiences. And um, they're, neither one of them is more valid than the other. It's just a different approach. So what are your present thoughts with regard to what we refer to as set and setting. Oh, well, um, set and setting, you know, I think that the, the construct, the three-part construct of drug set and setting being the determining factors that said, 
what an ex- what experience a person would get from a, a, an approach to a psychedelic substance is a little um, has been superseded by the addition of a fourth element, which I I always want to talk about this because this is coming from a paper that was written in the late 1990s by a woman scientist whose name is Betty Grover Eisner, one of the first one of the early psychedelic experimenters, a colleague of Sidney Cohen and Oscar Janninger, but who's less well-known than they are, which I think is often uh, kind of prevails where uh, women participants have been concerned. She wrote a paper in 1998 about what she called Matrix. And Matrix, she said, was the fourth element. And what she described Matrix as was the social environment from which a person comes to their psychedelic experience and to which they return after the experience is over. And that is what has changed in this century, is that the way in which psychedelics are regarded in our contemporary society has radically changed. It's changed in the last five years. It's changed in the last 10 years. It's certainly changed in the last 20 years. So drug set and setting can be relatively constant, even now, for somebody repeating an experience or somebody having an experience in a fairly similar set of circumstances. But the matrix is completely different. I'm here on a radio show talking about this stuff. That's a different manifestation of the social matrix than what prevailed when I started my doctoral work. What was the social matrix like that and what year was Well, I think I said, you know, people told me, you don't want to study this subject. This is a career killer. Mm -hmm. It's not of interest to anybody but you. Um, it's the stigma that's attached to these stupid drugs will stick to you and you'll be thought of as a looney tune. And I don't, I think people are able to take, undertake very serious study of psychedelics now in the way that they weren't then. And people who are, as you, as you have, I think, think created this series to demonstrate, I think people who have positions of, um, a certain amount of gravitas are not unwilling to say that their worldview has to some extent or sometimes to a great extent being, being really uh, formed by their psychedelic experiences. That's certainly true for me. Every one of the prominent people that I've interviewed to date have said that these, uh, uh, these uh, medicines, these substances have had a positive influence on their lives in various ways. What I meant when I asked uh, a reference about your social matrix uh, was not the at academia, which as yes, you did mention before. I meant more in terms of your your social matrix, you know, in the neighborhood, at home, and the people you associated with. And well, you know that um, I didn't really mean it in academia either. I think that oh. I think that um, it certainly is true in academia that there is ser- serious study that nobody reprehends going on about psychedelics right now, but. Um, people talk about their psychedelic use and the way in which it's benefited them. You know, there's the whole world of Silicon Valley and creativity and problem solving and, you know, sort of functional uses of the psychedelics, which really began to be explored in the 1960s. There were people who were the, the, the folks that the, the group that Jim Fadiman belonged to in, in the South Peninsula that was one of the things that they were really studying was like they would have, uh, you know, there's some notable publications from that time about an architect who was trying to solve some design problems and how much help he got in trying to figure out, you know, architecture is a game of inches and you wouldn't think that getting high would help you solve your architectural problems, but it seems to have really done for him. And that's, that's all exists in the literature. And Marlene Dobkin de Rios did some of those kinds of studies about are about creativity and how 
psychedelics could really stimulate you to think about things in a different way, which enabled creative activity that wouldn't have otherwise been possible. So this, the, the reality of this stuff has always been there. It was just that people didn't want to talk about it because you could get arrested. If you were a mother, child protective services could be brought into bear because you might be thought to be an unfit parent for your children. Um, you could lose your job. Um, you, you know, and at the very least, your neighbors would think you were crazy. And that, that has largely just been dispelled in the last 20 years or so, I think. In lot, not, not everywhere, but in lots of places. In, in the social world, not in academia. You're saying it's been dispelled. Do you think it's been dispelled nationally? Or do you think it's been dispelled perhaps in areas of the East Coast, the West Coast, and maybe a, a one or two places in between? What's your sense of that? Well, it's difficult for me to really imagine what it's like to live in the middle part of the country because I haven't ever really done that. But um, I did with a couple of other women in um, 2007, I did start a women's organization. We've um, been uh, guests at the Wilbur Hot Springs in, 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 um, at times when we were having a colloquium. And there have been women that I have come to know by virtue of being in that organization, which is called the Women's Visionary Council, um, who are from different parts of the country and who would say that some of the adaptation and adoption of these sort of, I think, richer perspectives has been slower in their communities than it has been on the coast. We're going to take a little tiny sidebar here because you mentioned the Women's Visionary Council, which I believe you are one of the founders of with Annie Harrison. Tell our listeners just briefly a little bit about the Women's Visionary Council. It's important. Well, when Dr. Hoffman had his 100th birthday, some of his Swiss associates gave him a, a, an enormous birthday party and fest and a, a sort of an, an, a program that was intended to honor the significance of his work. And they invited what they considered to be the the most important thinkers in the world of psychedelics to talk in Basel in his honor. And I had hoped to go and to participate in that conference, but about two weeks before it was supposed to happen, my father had a heart attack. And I just thought it was not an auspicious time to leave the country, so I didn't go. But Annie went, and um, Carolyn Garcia, who's the other founder, um, who's sometimes called Mountain Girl, um, and when they came back, they were in a state of outrage because there were about 75 speakers on this program and only four or five of them were women. And they were like, where were the women? You know, and we said, well, we could we could do something to fix that. We could start a colloquium where um, there would be a, a, a speaker group of 25 or so and two or three of them would be men. And we did that. And we did it to create a platform where women's voices would be privileged because they, we felt that that was, um, you know, it was symmetrical at the very least. And um, the early uh, editions of those meetings, which were three-day meetings, which we held, we've held, we've held them every year since that time until last year, we, we took a, 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 a hiatus because of the pandemic, but we've been holding these meetings pretty consistently. And we held the first of those three-day meetings at Wilbur Hot Springs. And there were, there were very women who were very well-known in the world of psychedelics there. Alison Gray was there. Um, Cindy Palmer, who, uh, who, uh, wrote Psychi who wrote Shaman Woman, Mainline Lady, and um, Sisters of the Extreme with her husband, Michael Horowitz. Um, so there were people who were well-known for being 
um, female psychedelic thinkers and writers. And then there were people who had never presented before and never been um, in a public environment. And um, I think there was a certain amount of trepidation. We were really uh, intense about security. We uh, were very careful about circulating our mailing list because we felt that there were still potentially consequences for people identifying themselves as being interested in this area. But we've been doing this pretty consistently ever since. And um, it's an interesting organization. I had the good fortune, as you know, of attending that first yes. uh, Women's Visionary Council meeting at Wilbur Hot Springs. And uh, particularly having two daughters, uh, it was a, a very exciting uh, event for me. And uh, wonderful to hear that it continues. And I, I followed it, and I do know that it does continue. You know, wh while we're on this sidebar, uh, I, I mean, you have brought to light uh, this topic of uh, women's involvement, both in psychedelics and, and other areas of, uh, of achievement. Uh, tell us a brief story about uh, the lady who was the first lady female to take psychedelics uh, Albert Hoffman's assistant. Oh, that you're talking about a woman whose name was Susie Ramstein. Yes. And um, I've, uh, I've kind of looked into her background because I think that she's a very interesting character. She actually has showed up in literature a couple of times previous to this late, latest level of exploration. She's in T.C. Boyle's book, um, Outside Looking In, and she's depicted as being this sort of besotted teenager who's um, kind of fallen in love with her boss. And uh, that's how she ends up participating in Hoffman's early LSD experiment. Um, but I doubt very seriously that any of that could really be true because her actual background is that she was from a pretty conservative Swiss family and she had a pretty orthodox early education. She went to finishing school and um, she, you know, her, she, girls in that era were not expected to go to university. So she went to a place where she learned how to cook and she had etiquette classes and stuff like that. Um, but after she finished that, she uh, elected to join the Sandoz laboratories and took a training program to become a technical assistant for the chemist there. And when she finished, it was a two-year program. And when she finished it, she was assigned as the junior assistant in Hoffman's laboratory. And so she did, you know, chemical procedures. She checked tests. She prepared um, chemical mixtures that were going to be used in experiments. And when um, Hoffman was then engaged in looking for ergot derivatives that could be used medicinally, which was one of the things that Sandus was known for. And he had some, you know, a lot of this, even when he has described it in his own writing, it also it all sounds really kind of mysterious. He had some kind of intuition that one of the sequence of these ergot derivatives that he had been um, experimenting with, the 25th one, um, might have some extra characteristics that hadn't been fully explored. It had caused a certain kind of restlessness in laboratory animals. And I don't know whether that's what cued him or whether he had a prophetic dream or what the situation was that brought this to his attention. But he decided to resynthesize what was what turned out to be LSD 25. And in the process of doing that in some mysterious way, which he couldn't even identify himself, he ingested some amount of the chemical that he was working with. And I later heard him talk about this one time in um, a, a psychedelic conference in San Francisco. And he said, you know, a bench scientist 
once he has established his laboratory habits, is it's vanishingly unlikely that he would change his laboratory habits at any time. So the idea that he did something different that would have made him ingest some part of the chemical he was exploring really seemed far-fetched to him. But there really wasn't any other um, easily uh, acceptable uh, explanation for what happened. So he kind of let that explanation stay. And he never really claimed that that was the true explanation, but it was the most likely explanation. But, you know, this was a time when self-experimentation and a, and a professional environment where self-experimentation was quite acceptable. And so he d- decided that he was going to see if he could, he, he had experienced this feeling of sort of mild intoxication, and he was going to see if it could have been caused by the LSD-25. So he, he, he determined that he was going to take a measured amount, which was such a tiny amount that he couldn't imagine that it was going to have any effect on him. And um, then he was going to gradually increase his exposure to the substance until he got to the point where he could find some detectable effect that it might have. And the amount that he chose as the minimum possible amount that could help, that could you know be good for anything was 250 micrograms. So he took 250 micrograms in a glass of water. The only person that he told that he was doing this was his laboratory assistant, who was Susie Ramstein. And when an hour or so later, he started to have visual distortions and be dizzy and have all the effects that 250 micrograms of pure LSD could cause, he figured he'd better go home. This was wartime in Basel. There weren't a lot of private automobiles. And he had come to work on a bicycle. So he was going to go home on a bicycle, and he asked her to bicycle with him through the streets of Basel, five kilometers to his house, which she did. And then she, and then by the time he got home, things were really distorted. Even in his own home, he felt like things were, you know, he was potentially, he felt like he had potentially poisoned himself, and he was quite alarmed. And he asked her to stay with him and to do certain things for him. He asked her to contact his neighbor and to get some milk, which he perceived to be a sort of universal antidote, and he was going to drink the milk in the hope that it might um, alleviate some of the possibility of poisoning, and also to call his family doctor, which she did, but his doctor wasn't available. So she found a substitute physician who would come and examine him, and the physician came and checked him out and couldn't find anything wrong with him. His eyes were dilated, but his vital signs were normal, and he couldn't complete a full sentence, but he otherwise seemed to be perfectly okay. And so Susie Ramstein called his wife, who was out of town at the time, and she'd taken their children to visit her parents. She was in another Swiss city and asked her to come home. And then she stayed with him until um, I think his wife arrived. And um, by virtue of this participation, I think she really qualifies as the first psychedelic guide therapist. Um, and, And you know, in conjunction with the other, he later told his boss and the other um, senior members of the Sandoz staff what had happened to him. And they all agreed to take small doses of LSD as part of the experimentation. And I think his his boss and the other sort of higher up male um, scientists took about 60 micrograms. Susie Ramstein agreed to take an LSD experimental dose and she took 100 milligrams she took 100 milligrams on three different occasions. Micro- Mi- I'm sorry, micrograms. Absolutely. She took 100 micrograms on, I think, three occasions that we know about. She also took a couple of other 
closely associated experimental substances that he was working with. And her, she, she provided data for um, the dose finding studies that were part of the early experimentation with LSD. So she was also clearly a scientist in this area. And she was also the first woman to take LSD. Um, on the 12th of June, 1943, she became the first woman to take LSD. And what can you share with us about what is known, if anything, about the various effects of LSD at various dosages, ranging from, say, 10 micrograms, which is considered, what are they calling it, a, a microdose or brightener, up to 750. I mean, we know that Chris Bosch took uh, over 500 micrograms 73 times by his report. Um, you know, this is not the area of my greatest expertise. I think of myself okay. primarily as an historian, but there's a lot of excitement about microdosing. I think there's a lot of um, confusion about microdosing because um, I think by definition, a microdose has to be one that you can't feel. Um, and uh, so I think a lot of people who report on the impact of their microdosing are not actually microdosing. There might maybe what you might call mini dosing, you know? Um, and I think that's because, because, the, because the very fact that they can report on feeling something means that it's not a microdose by definition. Mm -hmm. And I, I think yeah. this is definitely an area that really needs more serious exploration. And I'm hoping this will get funded and it'll really happen. Um, on the other end, you know, Chris Bache is a really serious guy, and I completely validate everything he's done. But I also think that there's a kind of world of um, heroic dose competition out there, which I find it's difficult to validate. Um, I think that people who want to who want to tell trip stories about the the number of micrograms that they've consumed are kind of missing the point. And, um, and that's not what Chris's work is about in any case. It was, it, I think I, I'm going to extrapolate a little bit from what I know from having talked to him about this. I think he didn't, his, his opportunities to have serious LSD sessions were limited because of his circumstances and his, um, geographic location. And he didn't want to kind of, um, underdose. So he wanted to be sure he took enough to have a real experience. But he wasn't in competition with anybody to see who could take the most. And I right. find that to be really kind of not too interesting. Yeah. Well, he went right to the cosmos yep. each time. And he, he bypassed a lot of uh, the intermediary uh, areas, uh, including certain kinds of introspection, if yep. you will. Now, please share with us your development. You, you started in your teens. Uh, late teens and maybe early 20s when you were at Vassar and you and Boston wasn't so far away with Leary and Alpert. What will you share with us regarding your use of these uh, of, of LSD during then your 20s, 30s, 40s, etc.? What, what happened after that? Well, you remember I mentioned I got on a motorcycle and ended up at a farm. And yes. um, that farm, that was the best address I've ever had. It was so high farms. S-O-J-A-I, Sohai Farms, Freedom Plains Road, Pleasant Valley, New York. Um, and this was a family, a mother and father with four sons. 
who were very accepting of their son's friends, girlfriends, wives, babies, psychedelic experiences, and other activities. And we, this was the first communal living environment that I ever really participated in. And there was an environment of sacredness that um, was a sort of accepted thing among all of us about psychedelics. So we took psychedelics on Easter Sunday or, um, you know, in the fall after the the fall harvest and butchering and getting ready for the winter activities were finished as a, as a group activity with an idea that it was a way to do some deep exploration and not as a party kind of thing. And um, so I, I had that, I, I started out in the party environment. Then I found out about this sort of sacred space use. Then I got done with my activities on the East Coast and I went back to California and I was a serious deadhead. One of the, uh, my, my boyfriend in high school had been a classmate and a friend of one of the uh, band members when they were both in school in the South Peninsula. And so I started listening to the Grateful Dead very early in their career and in my life. And the environment around the Grateful Dead was always one in which people took psychedelics and got high and shared this party environment. And once again, you know, I talk about this as um, something that was really, I was very fortunate that in the circumstances in which some of these things happened for me, because, you know, being high in the dead crowd was a pretty safe place to be high. The deadheads really take care of each other, even now. And um, I'm always, when I, when I started to really study psychedelics, I found out a very, a statistic that I'm very fond of, which is that um, the peak use of LSD in the United States wasn't until 1974, but the peak in emergency room mentions of LSD was in 1971. And I think that what happened in the interval was people figured out how to take care of each other. So, you know, not every psychedelic experience is pleasant. And sometimes people have experiences that are very unpleasant, but the community stopped taking those people to the emergency department and they figured out how to do the sort of chill room thing where you say, you took a strongly psychoactive drug. It's going to wear off in a while. Calm down. You're not alone. Everybody here has done this at least once, you know? And I, I think that that has a very soothing effect on trippers who have kind of wandered off into the weeds. And it's the mainstay of the way in which people like my community, the hog farm, have taken care of people in adverse psychedelic experiences for many, many years to just protect them until they get back to their ordinary state of consciousness. And um, I think that, that that has been community learning that has occurred during that time. I think this is a point extremely well taken. And of course, that counsel, this is going to wear off. We've all gone through this. This isn't going to last forever. You're okay. Is, 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 is excellent advice. <clears throat> As a clinical psychologist, there's one thing that I would like to see added to that in the right circumstances, which is there, that what's called a bad trip in some ways is the best possible trip because it's the hugest opportunity for learning. If you're guided into whatever it is that's scaring you, you can then examine it together with your guide and yourself. You can master it and then come out feeling like you've conquered some of the demons that were lurking inside, particularly F-E-A-R, which is something that is sold and mass in this country, uh, you know, fear, 
And, and when we examine those fears uh, during the LSD experience, there is a ripe opportunity to conquer them. That, uh, this is so important. And um, I think that this, uh, you know, Julie Holland's work, the, the book that she wrote about her experiences at Bellevue, when she, she, that's, that's what she did there. She was, the, she was the night psychiatrist at the hospital where they take crazy people in New York. And a lot of those people were under the influence of psychoactive substances. We're having what we that what we call an adverse psychedelic experience, sometimes called a bummer, you know, a bad trip. And what she did was work with people to make transform those experiences so they would be exactly as you described them: opportunities to confront something that was important and da- and dangerous to the psyche, you know, scary and 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 forbidden, in an environment of safety where they could do that. And I think the environment of safety is the key piece because that's what the difficulty is. You know, people, the, the, the early adverse psychedelic experiences, one of the people that I interviewed as a subject in my dissertation was someone who had had a, a panic experience during a trip in the Haight-Ashbury. He was a deserter from the Navy. And I think he thought that the police were coming to take him back to the Navy. And he went out of a window and he broke his neck and became a quadriplegic. Now, the thing about that is that that's a physical outcome that came from having taken a strong psychoactive substance in an environment where there was no protection. There was no one to discourage him from going out of the room. There was no one to, I, to, to uh, substitute an idea that he was not being pursued by anybody for the thing that took hold in his mind. And this is, to my way of thinking, this is the major danger that psychedelics present is that you might you need if you're gonna if you're gonna be out of your body in whatever dimension that description fits you have to leave your body with somebody who's going to take care of it while you're not in it and I think that's a big mistake that people can make is is not having some kind of points of reference like that and not having someone around to mind the transporter while you're outside you of you got it, it. yeah. Yeah, that's very good advice. That's and it's and very well put. Somebody's got to mind your body while you're outside of it. I, I hope we we underline that. So, as you, what we call aged, you got older and you developed. Did your psychedelic experimentations uh, continue? Oh yeah, um, I. Take us through your 20s, 30s, you know, give us some, you know, decade by decade, perhaps. I was very fortunate that um, when I was in my early 20s, I came into contact with a psychologist who um, also, who, who, you know, there was a, there was a realm of psychologists who had been influenced by Tim Leary and who were part of the, the group that Tim had belonged to. And then there were, there was the group of psychologists who were kind of the origins of the human potential movement and who were presenting the early work that was given at Esalen. And um, I fell in with somebody who was sort of part of that um, realm, who was uh, very much an elder to me and who um, was uh, committed to the idea that psychedelics had psychotherapeutic capacity. And I became a participant in what I learned when I was doing my dissertation research to call a psychedelic cluster, a group of people who had a similar attitude and idea about how psychedelics could be used and who used them together 
according to that idea. And I had a number of experience, supervised experiences in connection with this psychedelic cluster over a period of years um, with a variety of psychedelics. And, you know, truth to tell, I think I have to report that for about 10 years, I don't think I had one pleasant experience. Um, uh, it was all about confronting different kinds of things about myself, about the world in which I lived, about things I had already done in my life, about what my prospects were. Um, but there were certain things that were profoundly reassuring and nurturing. And I almost always came out the, the other end of the experiences in a very still, um, thoughtful, contemplative place. One of the things that began with my very first psychedelic experience and persisted through all of these was that death has a bad rap. That, you know, when you talk about fear, one of the things we've been primarily taught to fear in our lives is our own deaths. And death, you know, death, death's not a period, it's a semicolon, you know. And um, I, I really um, had that, the truth of that understanding brought home to me by psychedelics, both in my first and, and, and I think most startling psychedelic experience, and then repeatedly over a period of time as I kept taking psychedelics during different other phases in my life. Um, then, um, largely because of my association with the psychologist, I heard about the work of Stan Groff, and I went to some of the seminars that Stan and his then-wife, Joan Halifax Groff, um, presented at Esalen. And although, you know, Stan had left Spring Grove by that time and there was no longer any real permission for people to use psychedelics in therapy, that he, um, he wasn't like guiding people's trips or encouraging trips to happen in conjunction with his workshops, but you could kind of couldn't stop people from experimenting on their own. And after I was exposed to his theories, I started having those theories inform the psychedelic experiences that I had. And I really, uh, I really came to understand the way in, in which he conceptualized the environment of birth as a kind of pivotal experience for human consciousness development. And I ended up becoming a midwife because of that. So um, in the 1980s, I went through midwifery education and then practiced midwifery throughout most of the 80s. And um, because I, you know, I was... I was born in 1950. I'm a child of the 60s. I was active in a lot of protest movements and civil rights movements when I was still in high school. I really felt that my my identity as a grown-up was to be an agent of social change. And psychedelics, through the insights that I got about the environment of birth, I saw that that the birth experience might be a place where you could produce a lot of social change as a as a sort of fulcrum point, that there was a lot of leverage to be exercised there. So the 1980s, I was really pretty much devoted to getting an education as a midwife and then practicing as a midwife. And right about the time that I finished my midwifery schooling, midwives and nurse practitioners got prescriptive authority for the first time in, in California. And I didn't feel like I'd really had enough education in pharmacology. So I went to the people who were in charge of the school of midwifery that I had been through at UCSF and said, you know, we really ought to teach pharmacology more formally. And they said, well, if you think it's so important, maybe you should do that. Well, by that time, I was already involved with the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic. So I got Daryl Inaba, who is a PharmD, 
who was the, the head of the detox program at the free clinic, whom I knew well, to help me write a pharmacology course for midwives. And I started teaching that course at UCSF in about 1986 or 87. And I taught it after that, I taught it maybe about 30 times in different kinds of um, healthcare education environments. And so that's what I did in the 1980s and 90s. I became somebody who was interested in the study of midwifery, the environment of birth, the transformative elements that were possible around the environment of birth. And then the the understanding... During that period, excuse me for interrupting, during that period of the 1880s and 90s while you were practicing midwifery, uh, were you also uh, from time to time taking psychedelics? Privately, but... Um, yes, and how frequently? Um, maybe once or twice a year. Uh-huh. So was that a decrease from the, what you had taken earlier? Um, it, there were periods in my life when I took more um, substances than I did then, but um, I really have kind of figured out that that was a pretty ideal frequency for me. These are big experiences for me, and I feel like it takes me a while to assimilate what comes through when I have them. So it's, it, you know, it's, it's like eating from a banquet table. You can stuff yourself. There's an endless supply of food, but if you keep eating and you don't digest any of it, you'll get indigestion. Tell us some more about your view of influencing cultural change through the birthing experience. Give us a little bit of information on that. Well, that largely comes from Stan's work. And he basically said all transformative experiences have this sort of similar template to the actual biologic experience of birth. And people go through what he called the, the no exit place, you know, the sort of, this is intolerable, I can't stand it, it's probably gonna kill me and it's never gonna end, which, you know, anybody who's ever had a what so-called bummer LSD trip knows exactly what that feels like. But then you come out into the new realm, you know, like the baby gets expelled from the birth canal. All that pressure and danger is over and the rules are all different and the world is reborn and the, you know, the person is reborn. And in, in Stan's theories of the, at that time, he was basically suggesting that biological birth maybe acts as a kind of template for transformative experiences of all kinds that people may experience subsequently in their life, including psychedelic experiences, but also perhaps including the experience of their own death, which I have really come to believe is correct. And like many other midwives, I've kind of evolved in my practice from being interested in birth to being interested in death, which is where I am now. Yes. Would you recommend that someone take LSD while giving birth? Oh, you know, many, many people have asked me whether they should take LSD in a variety of circumstances. And so many people have asked me this, that I have a pat answer and that this is what it is. Okay. If you have to ask me whether, you know, that's like asking me if you can kiss me. If you have to ask, the answer is no. You know, birth is plenty transformative without adding any um, altered states of consciousness that come from outside the mm -hmm. body. Um, I, I um, have certainly heard stories about people who have done things like that, but I've never been a participant in a birth of anybody who was high in that way. I've been a participant yeah. of births in people who were high, but they were high on the experience they were having for the most part. Yes. Now, you've moved on from birthing to uh, Thanatos, I know that. And uh, we, we know that Huxley took LSD uh, as he was uh, what we call dying. Uh, do you have thoughts on, on doing that? 
Well, you know, um, I, I, I have a lot of thoughts about LS, about LSD and psychedelics at the end of life. And I'm really grateful for the work that's being done in the research environment about this because um, the, the, the psychedelic medicine world has clearly expressed that there's a whole, this is not about a drug. This is about an experience. And to, to, to be as likely as possible for the experience to be valuable, it's desirable to be prepared for the experience before you have it, and then to have an opportunity to integrate what comes from the experience after it happens. And I wouldn't think that somebody who is naive to psychedelics, just being given psychedelics as a part of the otherwise very intense experience of getting ready to leave one's body would be as likely to profit from it as the people who've been um, lucky enough to be able to have it in that whole package. And I hope that that's where we're going with psychedelics at the end of life, that it might be something that might be provided to somebody with preparation and integration in a comprehensive environment, such as in a hospice environment. Um, and also, I would like to see that experience be available to the people who are not dying, you know, the people who are going to be the bereaved family members of someone who is dying, because oftentimes the transformation is more important for them than it is even for the person who's dying. And what would you hope that they would gain from doing that? Well, that they would recognize that um, being in a body and not being in a body are different, but there is a, you know, that I think once again, I'm, I'm, I've been very much guided by Stan, Stan Groff's work, who is really truly a genius. And he kind of perceives and is able to explain the whole universe as a holographic environment where it's all here at the same time. And we don't lose our beloved objects in death. They move into another expression of the hologram, but they haven't really gone anywhere, really. And I think that that once, you know, explaining it doesn't really help very much, but once people have experienced that directly, I think that can have a really profoundly healing effect on people. What are some of the headlines of how these psychedelics have changed your life? I'm not afraid to die. And I think that began when I had my first exposure to LSD when I was 16. That's, that's, a, big, that's a big headline. Yeah. A dying is different. Death is one thing. Dying is something else. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And yeah. I'm not certain that I have the, the, the capacity or the development to face the experience of dying with the same kind of equanimity that I regard the idea of death. But I hope that that is true. And I hope that that becomes true in my life when it's time for me to do that. Amen. Or our women. Uh, yes, another little piece of our language, isn't it? Um, you mentioned uh, earlier in the interview uh, that there's a, a microdosing has caught on. Have you microdosed and you have anything to share if you have about the experience? Um, I have microdosed with psychedelic mushrooms. And I um, have used the formula, I believe, that was developed by Paul Stamets, which is a, a tenth of a gram of Psilocybe cubensis and um, 15 drops of lion's mane tincture. And that's uh, once every three days. Uh, potion. Oh, using the uh, 
two days off and one day mm -hmm. on if you're going to do a regimen over a period of weeks or months. Yeah. I've talked to people who have done the regimen and, uh, of course, it's an anecdotal, not scientific information, but I've been hearing some quite remarkable personality changes uh, that people have accomplished. You know, that's like trying to see your own eyes. It's really difficult if you're going to have personality change to see it in yourself. I would be very interested to, to hear what the reports of people who are close to people who have been doing that and who feel that there's been personality change, how that's perceived by people other than themselves. That's a very good point. And I, 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 uh, I interviewed this fellow, Paul Austin, who has this uh, podcast, The Third Wave. And he uh, said that he did the one day on, two off for nine months. And he said it changed him. He believes that he became uh, less introverted, more confident, uh, you know, more sure of himself. Uh, but it would, but, and he does have a group of people around him. And I think that's a great question to ask him to check with the people and see if they also notice those changes. That's a fascinating way, uh, a fascinating way to look at it. Well, I'm wondering if there's anything else we want to add to this interview. We're at about an hour right now. Uh, what have we left out? Um, uh, I would say these substances are not toys. Um, to the extent that they've been used in a cultural container, there has always been a, a, a thoughtful, uh, traditional approach to their use. Um, this is one of the reasons that I have such an affection for LSD, because I feel like it's one of the areas in which I don't have to fear that I'm trespassing into somebody else's um, sacred lineage or history. If there is a cultural container for LSD, I'm it. Um, but these are substances that are extremely powerful and useful and they deserve to be taken seriously and sacredly and and sacredly you're now uh in your 70s do you continue to use psychedelic medicines you know it's hard to say what will happen in the future I've become a, a student of Stephen Jenkinson a fellow whom I whose writing I quite like and I've actually traveled to Iceland and to Wales to study with him. So it's an indication that I'm serious about what he's talking about. And one of the things he says is, you know, you, you have to be thought, you have to, you have to give serious thought to the fact that there's no guarantee that you'll wake up tomorrow with all your faculties or at all. And so um, I haven't really got any specific plans for what I might do, um, but it's certainly an open issue for me. I have absolutely no reason to think that I wouldn't want to do it. Um, but circumstances change and sometimes very radically, as we've all learned in the last couple of years. Well, if, if this man has impressed you, as you have impressed me, I'd like you to spell his last name. Stephen. Jenkinson, J-E-N-K-I-N-S-O-N. And he's what I would describe as a stand-up philosopher. <laughs> I will I will reference him and look him up. He wrote a very interesting book called Die Wise about his experiences in working with people at the end of life as a social worker. And he's a wonderful wordsmith. He's got a beautiful, beautiful command of the English language. Maria Vittoria, thank you very much for taking the time 
to join me today on this conversation about psychedelic medicine. Well, you're quite welcome. And Dr. Miller, I'm using your title for a reason. And I want to say that the Smoke Enders program, um, Smoke Enders and Coke Enders both, have, have saved so many lives and been so effective and had such an impact in the community that I think people don't appreciate how impactful you have been in your work. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Touched my heart. And thank you all for joining me for today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. With special thanks to our producer, Charlie Dice, and our sound engineer, David Springer, who make this broadcast possible. Please join me again next Tuesday at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time for our next stimulating broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.